The subject matter of this podcast will address difficult topics, multiple forms of violence, and identity-based discrimination and harassment. We acknowledge that this content may be difficult and have listed specific content warnings in each episode description to help create a positive, safe experience for all listeners. In this country, 31 million crimes, 31 million crimes are reported every year. That is one every second. Out of that, every 24 minutes, there is a murder. Every five minutes, there is a rape. Every two to five minutes, there is a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted by someone who told her that he loved her, by someone who told her it was her fault, by someone who tries to tell the rest of us it's none of our business. And I am proud to stand here today with each of you to call that perpetrator a liar. Welcome to the podcast on Crimes Against Women. I'm Maria McMullen. Tens of thousands of people are killed by firearms each year in the United States. In fact, the United States has the highest rate of gun violence of any country worldwide and by a very wide margin. Firearms are also directly linked to a woman's risk for injury or death in domestic violence situations, as it is well documented that for women, lethality risk increases significantly when attempting to leave an abusive partner or relationship. And that gun ownership by an abusive partner increases that risk further, as access to a gun in a domestic violence situation makes it five times more likely that a woman will be killed by her partner. In addition to playing a leading role in incidents of femicide, firearms are also used to specifically target and terrorize women as a means to exert power, maintain control, and to abuse. Alicia Nichols, Deputy Director of the National Domestic Violence and Firearms Resource Center of the Battered Women's Justice Project, joins me to explore the link between firearms and lethality risk in intimate partner violence relationships, as well as the myriad responses to gun violence that will improve safety for women and keep guns out of the hands of violent offenders. Alicia Nichols has been advocating for victims of violence for nearly 20 years and is a licensed social worker, victim advocate, and restorative justice practitioner whose work is rooted in the values of social justice, racial equity, accountability, and healing. Alicia Nichols, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're talking today about the link between firearms and an increased risk of lethality to women in abusive relationships where guns are present in the home. So to set this up, help us understand the scope of this issue with some statistics that might illustrate the significant impact that firearms have in an abusive home. Absolutely. Well, and again, thank you so much for for highlighting this incredibly important issue. You know, first, you know, I want us to talk a little bit about before we we jump into the intersection of domestic violence and firearms violence is even just to talk about, right, how pervasive domestic violence is in itself, right? Just just how much uh, it is impacting our yes. communities. So we know, we know, Maria, that 20 people are physically abused by an intimate partner every minute of the day. This includes men and women, but we also know that there are significant impacts across all social and economic and racial lines. But there are barriers and concerns that are also unique to communities of color, to Native and Indigenous people, members of the GLBTQI community, and I can go on and on. So we know that this is an issue that impacts everyone. 
We also know that we live in a country that has an obsession, is what I would say, with firearms and is in itself in an, an epidemic of gun violence. So Maria, last year, I just, I, I just, these numbers are just so startling to me every time I read them. But gun homicides last year in the United States took the lives of nearly 23,000 people. Mm-hmm. And shocking, you know, shockingly to, to add to that, gun suicides killed nearly 26,000 people. So we know that we have, right, we have the significant issue and the serious and pervasive problem of intimate partner violence. And then we have this issue with gun violence. And when you bring these two things together, it absolutely is a combination for lethal violence that has a massive ripple effect across individuals and families and our communities. And I also just want to share one other thing with you about about gun violence before I then go into some statistics with you and your audience about firearm and domestic violence um, that go hand in hand together. Something else that we learned in the last year is that we have this, we also have an issue with firearms violence and youth and firearm injury is now the leading cause of death among young people ages one to 19 years old in the United States, Mm -hmm. which you're and and, and then we, and that doesn't even address what we talk about the thousands of children and teens who experience non-fatal firearm injuries every year, but also the exposure to firearm violence. Um, even in the absence of, of, of a physical injury, right, we know can have a long lasting negative effect on, on a child's health and well-being. And we know that witnessing domestic violence, um, right, also has long-term impacts. Yeah. And Maria, so I, I want to make sure that I, I, I hate sometimes to throw so many statistics at people, but but to paint the picture of just how serious this is, we do have to spend some time looking at the numbers. So I want to speak specifically to the United States and that women killed by guns in high-income countries, that, that 92% of women that were killed by guns came from the United States, 92%. Yeah, come from this country. Compared to compared to the rest of the world, the United States, by a very wide margin, leads in gun violence and absolutely and and homicide and femicide. Absolutely, absolutely, and and right, and the the late Senator Paul Wellstone, while he was debating on the Senate floor over eighteen USC nine twenty two G nine, said all too often. The only difference between a battered woman and a dead woman is the presence of a gun. Mm-hmm. And he was yeah. absolutely right because what he knows, what he knew and what we know and continue to know is that research has shown us and told us that gun possession by an abuser is often the most significant risk factor for the escalation of domestic violence and of course, lethal violence. Right. We know that 1 million women in the United States have been shot or shot at by their intimate partner. And we can't we can't discount right coercive control. And coercive control is so insidious Maria because it is it is a, a tactic that is used by abusers and is behavior that oftentimes isn't right illegal in the eyes of the law but terrorizes women and children. So we know that four and a half million women in the United States have been threatened by a gun. And Maria, I have worked with women who who have said the presence of the gun 
is 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 it, right is enough for 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 me to comply with what he's asking me to do and and it doesn't even necessarily mean that that the the, the abuser is pointing the gun at the victim it may be that every sunday night he takes that gun out and he cleans it in front of her and maybe yeah, makes absolutely absolutely comments. i mean that is that is enough to make anyone kind of fall in line with what's being asked of them uh just having the gun in the vicinity. Um, I want to go back to something that you said uh, about this obsession with guns in this country. What do you think is behind that? Oh, you know, I, I wish I knew. And this is something, you know, and and I'm glad you asked the question because, you know, I, I everywhere I go in the country, everyone says, well, I'm this is a hunting state. And Maria, I'm in Minnesota. So I would mm. say I'm from a hunting state. And people in Texas say, I'm, you know, I'm a hunting state. People in New Jersey, et cetera. You know, I don't, um, you know, people like to stand behind the Second Amendment. But, but I think what we have to remember is that when you use violence in your homes, that we know that you are more likely to use lethal violence. It's why federal law prohibits of the nine categories, two of those categories of prohibition of firearms are for domestic violence offenders. And, you know, I don't know exactly what the, um, what, what the, 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 the love behind, you know, the, the guns and, and owning them may be, but, you know, I, I choose to, to think that it also, right, that there are families who have very fond memories of, of hunting trips and going out and doing things together, and it's a way for them to bond. But again, there is a difference between a responsible gun owner and someone who is using violence in their home. And when we know that it is likely to, to become lethal violence, you know, there are more, there are, there are more civilian-owned guns in the United States that are, that are owned by our law enforcement and our military. And I just want to say that again, private citizens in the United States own and possess more firearms than our military and our police. And not only that, there are more guns in this country than we have people. More that's guns a, privately owned than people. That's a, that's an incredible uh, fact. I Appreciate you pointing that out. And just as a point of reference, where does the data that you're quoting uh, actually come from? Oh, sure. So, so quite a bit of the 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 um, the information that I'll share today will um, has been published by a researcher by the name of Dr. April Zioli. We rely heavily on the work that she does to also show that statutory interventions do work in in reducing homicide. Another excellent resource for your audience is the Violence Policy Center. The Violence Policy Center has a variety of different publications that they put out on an annual basis that I am always waiting for and always going to because they produce such excellent research around, um, around gun deaths in this country. And in particular, they have a report that is titled When Men Murder Women. Excellent resource. They also have, and I know that we'll spend some time maybe talking about this later, about the homicide and suicide connection to domestic violence. But, but the Violence Policy Center also puts out an excellent report called American Roulette that talks about murder suicides in this country uh, and also what some of the gaps are in, in even collecting data and information. Um, but I also would direct people to, to our website at prevent 
dvgunviolence.org to find additional information. And of course, I would be happy if it's possible to share any publications or um, information with you to, to post along with this podcast for your audience. Yeah, that's extremely helpful. I like having those points of reference so people can dig further into the information. Um, you also mentioned uh, briefly about women of color, LGBTQIA plus uh, community. And I wanted to just dig in a little bit on that data and understand how those specific groups, including uh, women with disabilities, might be more likely to have increased lethality due to firearm presence uh, in an abusive relationship. Well, certainly. And we know that an abuser's access to firearms uh, exacerbates the problem and, of course, makes it far more lethal. So in, in terms of um, you know domestic violence itself, we know that 84% of American Indian and Alaska and Native women have experienced violence in their lifetimes or will experience violence in their lifetimes. Uh, one in three Latinas will experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime. And 45% of Black women experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in the issue, the issue is, right, the, 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 the further we go on down the list of, of talking about underserved and, and marginalized communities, oftentimes the less data there is. And so that in itself is, is even an issue is how is it that we are collecting data so that we have a really good snapshot of what it is that, that's truly happening in, in communities. And so, um, you know, like, for, for example, um, when it comes to Asian women, between 20, it's, it's a, a rather large um, range between 21 and 55% of Asian women in the United States report experiencing intimate partner violence. Um, and, and we know that that members of the GLBTQI community also experience high rates of, of, of violence. And, and right, the last thing that I will say is that 70% of respondents with disabilities in a survey that was conducted by the Spectrum Institute said that they had experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner, family member, or caregiver. And this isn't, right, this is all before we've added a firearm into to the mix. And, and while I said that, right, domestic violence crosses all social, economic, and racial lines, but there are still barriers for, for these other groups. And, and, and oftentimes it's, it stems from these survivors not having culturally appropriate services, as well as the prevention and supportive resources available in a variety of different languages, for example. And I think what adds to these challenges is really a, a lack of collaboration with community-based social service organizations that have historically provided services to, to these underserved and marginalized communities. But the numbers, Maria, are absolutely, um, in, in my opinion, um, and I think in everyone's mind, should be startling. And one of the things that, that I want to share with you, um, when we talk about really quickly just domestic violence and gun violence by the numbers, I want to share with you that an abuser's access to a firearm increases the risk of homicide by a thousand percent. A thousand percent. You're absolutely right. I, I mean, those statistics are everything that we've we've learned through the conference on crimes against women and it goes without saying the whole situation is outrageous and not to mention that this is this is underreported in terms of yes. Uh, yes. incidents yes and ongoing abuse and so we're stuck with this these crazy uh, numbers uh, coming out of 
all different populations. And the fact that a, a firearm exacerbates it absolutely the lethality does. risk and the likelihood that a femicide will be committed um, in a country where gun ownership is, is just outnumbering people, as you say. Yes, yes. And, and Maria, you, 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 you've brought me to another point in that, you know, I, I just shared with you that, right, the, the presence of a gun can increase um, in a home where there is domestic violence, can, can increase the lethality by a thousand percent. Even, even there is a recent study that came out of California, even in homes where there is no domestic violence. And I want to repeat that, no domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Women living in homes where a gun was brought into the home were still three times more likely to be murdered. So no domestic violence in a home, but just the presence of a gun increased the the, the likelihood of lethality by three times. For men who bring a gun into their home, it actually increases the likelihood that they will die by suicide by seven times within the first year of bringing that gun into the home. That's amazing. Um, I, I wish we had enough time to really dig into. I know to, to dig into all of this, but but the, but the point being, Maria, is that when the gun is there, right, it is dangerous. It's dangerous, and we need to find. And I, that doesn't mean that that people. I'm not, I'm not trying to discourage people from from possession or gun ownership, but we but we do need to have a conversation. Obviously, given all of the data that I've just shared with you about how do we disarm people who use physical violence, who use um, verbal, emotional, physical, spiritual, other forms of, of violence in their households. How do we disarm those people? Because we, what we know is just the presence of that gun increases the likelihood of someone losing their life. For sure. And there's a difference between, you know, responsible gun ownership mm-hmm. and probably everything else. Um, You mentioned the word suicide, and when we talk about gun violence and domestic violence, we also have to look at the murder-suicide and mass shooting incidents, both of which are on the rise. What might be behind that increase? You know... I, I, I honestly, I wish, I wish I could, I could tell you more about what, what the root causes of, of that were, why it's on the, I don't know if it necessarily is on, on the rise or if we as a society are just paying closer attention. Um, right. I, there were, there were a lot of folks that I encountered over the last two years during the pandemic who really thought that the pandemic was the reason that people were experiencing violence in their homes and were having difficulties. Um, and right COVID is not the root cause of why people are experiencing violence in their homes. Did 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 the pandemic exacerbate things? Absolutely, it did. But right, we can we know that that there are there are uh, risk factors, and there right there are are things that families deal with and struggle with that that can um, further exacerbate the harm, and that can be lack of employment. Um, we also know right that it is incredibly dangerous when when the victim attempts to leave. Right. And so um, there when when the uh, the perpetrator or the abuser, right, when when they cannot maintain the power and control that that they have been able to previously. Right. They're going to start trying different strategies to to, to maintain the power and control in the household. Um, And, you know, again, I I don't necessarily know um, that it's been an uptick. I think that we 
that the movement, meaning the domestic violence movement and gun violence movement has done a lot of work with journalists and with others to start trying to tell stories in a more accurate and different way and, and, and naming it, it as what it is. Um, but Maria, there also there are really only a handful of organizations nationwide who are working at that particular intersection of domestic violence and, and murder-suicide. And there are thousands of survivors and people who are impacted by murder-suicides every year who are going without services uh, because they don't know where to go and the services just don't exist. But we know that there are between 1,000 and 1,500 murder-suicides a year. Nine out of 10 of those, of course, are with a firearm. And nearly 65% of those are happening within a domestic, you know, it's a, it's a involving an intimate partner. Um, I wish I could tell you um, exactly why, but right, that's why we need to get to, to some of the root causes, which the criminal and civil systems can be really helpful in creating safety for survivors to an extent and in intervening in violence. But we also at the National Center are looking at other strategies uh, and approaches, right, that can really intervene more permanently in the violence and end the violence. Yeah, and I want to get into those. But before we do, you mentioned the pandemic, which I I'm really not sure where we are in the pandemic at this point. You know, I know it doesn't really feel like it's over. <laughs> no, um, but uh, to your point, while while the COVID pandemic probably is responsible for bringing to light more domestic violence mm -hmm. uh, to the public, um, it may not be responsible for the actual increase. But there was a lot of anger uh, that flared up at the beginning of and during the pandemic, especially in the first year, and intersected with other things that were happening within the country of the United States, yes. uh, political and otherwise, and, and systemic issues. And so that anger really began to flare. Gun ownership increased dramatically during that period it in did. this country. And so we had the issue where a a country of people who are being who are sheltering in place are becoming angry and now they're owning more guns and our government was only you know fanning the flames of, of a really uh, tumultuous violent group of people uh, who were who were given a stage who were given a voice um, in in a, you know what became a, a a very challenging time and conversation for this country so in addition to the femicide and homicide that we just talked about, firearms are also used by abusive partners to dominate and control. And you you touched on that, coercive control, huge yes. topic, whole other conversation. But they further gender oppression, misogyny, and toxic masculinity, as we've seen over the past couple of years, really came to into the, the forefront and the media talking about it as well. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, maybe give us your thoughts on how misogynistic narratives in public and private forums contribute to nurturing a culture of gender-based violence and how that narrative compromises victim safety on a community, systemic, and legislative levels. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, so in cases of, of, of domestic violence, there's, um, right, I think the the movement it, itself, um, as domestic violence advocates and practitioners, right? We have we have been attempting for a long time to have conversations about the role of misogyny and sexism in our culture and in our society and how it impacts 
um, it impacts the, the experiences that that women have. And, uh, you know, one one can argue, I think, that misogyny starts with with some of the reinforcement of, of sexism and, and stereotyping about about women, right? That that paying women less um, than a man for doing the same job. Um, oftentimes, women are are judged as being good or bad based on our clothing and, and even just our appearance, what we wear. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, right? Really, uh, we we see a lack of, of diversity and gender in in many of our institutions, from our courtrooms to our hospitals to our universities, our, our elementary schools, etc. Um, and right, we know, you know, an example of this. I was I was just saying to someone yesterday, I, you know, I really need to write an op ed about this and and get into like just unpack this because mm-hmm. as a victim advocate maria over the weekend i had an experience where i was getting some some printing done so i was printing some pictures at at a store and the gentleman at the counter um he said oh are you in a hurry and i said no i have you know i, I i'm off today and he said well what do you do and i said oh i work in domestic violence and gun violence and his first response to me was oh i guess i better not make any jokes oh. And I thought, what? (laughs) And exactly. And that happens a lot. It happens. I mean, I had another instant. And that's the reason why I thought I really want to get into this and unpack some of this, because it also happened to me over the summer while I was at I was visiting one of my favorite farmers um, that I've become acquainted with at my local farmer's market. And and it was a gentleman. And he said the the same thing and, and really sort of laughed it off. And I, you know, I don't think that that, that people realize that those types of, of comments and sentiment, right, uphold and uplift the experiences yeah. that women have in this country, right? Talking down to people, making jokes, you know, the way that we that we raise our, our boys and our men, right, about not, about having to, to be tough and to conceal their emotion and, um, and, and those types of things, normalizing this idea that young men, right, are the pursuers and are always the primary decision makers, right? And these are just some of the things that we also know, of course, are reinforced by, um, right, aggressive male stereotypes in in movies and television and our music. And that isn't, right, that isn't where all of the blame goes. So, so for example, I, you know, I, I, I'm not in the school of, of folks thinking that because a child plays a, a violent video game, that, that that automatically means that they're going to go out and commit an act of violence. But but we do have to have the conversations about what do these messages that are repeated over and over and over and over again to the point where they become normalized, right? What does it mean in terms of how how we we look at and we view violence and and how we develop strategies, right? And if um, because we still, I've been doing this work for twenty years, and I still have conversations with criminal and civil justice professionals where I feel as though I have to convince them that domestic violence is real. Yeah, you know, I'm still um, I'm still stuck back on uh, the comment of I better not make any jokes. I, I don't get that at all. I, I just have yeah. a hard time understanding yeah. how anything related to violence um, against anyone could be a laugh. Could be could be entertainment and a joke, right? Situation and 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 why was he so threatened by your presence of you know being there to the the fact that you work in the field of domestic violence to me it sounded like he you know 
he was threatened by that in some way. And I wonder what's going on there. I did a study, um, a focus group, a, a couple of, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago already. And where I asked, I asked, um, right, just the general everyday average person. And I asked actually gun owners too, right, what they felt, what they thought about domestic violence. And they all felt like it was an issue. They, they, I mean, they really did. Everybody mm-hmm. collectively said, yes, domestic violence is real. It is a problem. It is happening. We need to do something about it. And then when we started talking about whether or not abusers should have access to guns, you know, everybody across the board from gun owners to right, everybody said, absolutely not. If you use violence in your home, you shouldn't be able to have a gun. But what they couldn't, what no one could quite wrap their head around, Maria, was how do we disarm the abuser then? How do we get the, how do we get the guns? We all agree they shouldn't have guns. But nobody, no, they, people could not, it was, it was just unimaginable that they were like, I just don't know how you would get the guns though. I I don't know how you would, how you would actually have someone relinquish them. And and then how do you prevent them from, from, from getting other guns? And Maria, I do want to bounce back for just a moment to something that that you had said earlier. And I just, uh, about the access to a gun. And I want to share with you, right, that uh, over almost I think it's, I think the number, it's almost half, it's, it's almost half of, of domestic violence homicides that occur with a firearm happen during the course of an argument only. There isn't any other type of felony or crime that's happening. It means that two people are having an argument and because it is accessible and it is there, someone can get a gun and can fire it because it is extremely effective, right? What it is intended to do. So thinking about access, if we can remove the gun, we know that we can save lives. But people, the general public agrees, but just struggles as to how we would do it. And that's where I come in to be able to help communities. But I also just wanted to really drive home that point of even just the fact that the gun is there. Yeah, I get it. You're absolutely uh, right. And in in the United States, people get very nervous when they hear about taking guns away. Yes, yes. Even when that removal involves an abuser um, with a high risk of killing his partner. And so there are steps that are being taken legislatively and with policy to make that happen. Um, Let's look at the statistics of the dangers of firearms. So our listeners can understand why these weapons are so dangerous to women in abusive situations, but also to the police officers who respond to domestic disturbance um, and then maybe to the community at large. Absolutely. And so, um, Maria, so I've shared with you and your audience that we know that an abuser's access to a firearm increases the risk of homicide by a thousand percent. More than half of the women that are killed in the United States are killed by guns. Um, And I I, want to share with you in in particular, just a couple of stats about black women. And and then I want to talk with you about um, the how this this spills over into right what what happens in the home oftentimes spills out into the greater community and has an impact on um, on folks outside of right the the, the primary victim and, and children. Yeah. So, Maria, domestic violence and guns. When we talk about Black women, and and I would encourage your audience again to to check out. 
the Violence Policy Center's publication on when men murder women. But we know, right, I've shared with you that, well, let me tell you this, Black women in, and this is data from 2021, that Black women were murdered by men at a rate almost three times that of white women. That 72% of Black female victims were shot and killed by guns, with guns. 90% of Black black females, excuse me, knew their killers, right? And and, and then when we look at at, at overall homicides, um, what, what we know is for homicides, that in 2021, in which the victim to offender relationship was able to be identified, 89% of the women were murdered by a man that they knew, right? right. The, this is the killer that we know. Eight times as many females were murdered by a man that they knew than were killed by strangers, right? So again, this is the killer you know. This is someone that's in your home. And, and something that we, can, that, that we can talk about a little bit later is that, that dating relationships account for nearly half of all intimate partner homicides, which, Maria, is why it was so important that we started in this last session to look at closing what has been called the boyfriend loophole. I yeah. personally prefer to be more inclusive and to call it the relationship um, uh-huh. loophole in closing that, but right, that doesn't, um, it doesn't include, our current laws don't necessarily or have not always included dating partners. Um, and we know that the homicides are happening in, in those relationships. Uh In terms of the the impact on others, as you heard me say, what oftentimes happens in the home spills out into the street. We know that, as we've said, gun violence is clearly a public health epidemic. We we know this. I I don't think that we can argue that. And the consequences of this, of the gun violence, are, are much more pervasive and are affecting entire communities, including first responders. So we know that officers in 2021, there were 458 police officer fatalities. And of uh, 62 of those were firearm related. And what we know is that those officers were responding to domestic violence calls. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence calls are one of the most dangerous calls that an officer goes to. And the more information an officer can have about the presence of, of, of weapons, what the, the, the history is of domestic violence in the home, um, the more officers can do, uh, right, when, when, when they're responding to the home. And not only, you know, there, there is this connection between domestic violence perpetration and mass shootings. Um, we know that perpetrators of domestic violence, there was, and this comes from Maria, a Bloomberg report. Between 2014 and 2019, 60% of mass shootings were perpetrated by someone who had a criminal history of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So, and I can give you, you know, I can, I can give you an, an example. And in February of, of 2016, there was a man named Cedric Ford who shot 17 people at his Kansas workplace. He killed three people and he did this act only 90 minutes after having been served with a restraining order by his ex-girlfriend. 
Yeah, it's it's a very you know, common scenario, right? Yes. And if you've yes. listened this far into the podcast, you should be uh, very concerned at this point, hearing all of this data, uh, and you should be ready to take action. And I want to look at some of the issues that how offenders are obtaining firearms and what could be done to protect victims. I really want to get into the solutions. Um, the yes. possible solutions yes. that that we might have in these in these yes areas. because this cannot be all doom and gloom there are absolutely strategies and solutions that we that we that we know are available to us that can prevent these tragedies yeah and i think in addition to that people listening may want to take action uh, and there's many many peaceful ways and um you know uh legitimate ways to take action without causing further violence, without being controversial. I mean, the, there are there are steps that can be taken to uh, reduce this type of violence. And we know that the process of selling a firearm to a purchaser is supposed to involve the firearm dealer initiating a background check through NICS, where then the FBI conducts searches through three national databases. And from there, are certain criteria is to be followed. So let's talk about that process. Is there somewhere in the process or within the law that you see offenders continuing to fall through the cracks and obtend, uh, obtaining uh, firearms anyway? Yes. Well, and, and let me let me first start. And I and I promise, Maria, I, I will loop back. I will come back <laughs> okay. to this. I promise you. And I know you will hold me to it. But I but I know this I is great. Keep, yeah, you just yeah, I, I want to cue it up for the audience. So so because oftentimes right, when, when people and, and as you said, if, if your audience has been listening thus far, they know that we have a huge problem on our hands. And oftentimes what I hear, uh, people are shocked. They, they didn't have any idea. And they say, well, we we need laws. What, what do we do? Do I call my legislator? Do I do we need more mm -hmm. laws? And, and I would say say, certainly we can, we can always strengthen the laws. However, we already have the laws that we need on the books and in place to address this issue. The problem is that it is not being enforced. And so Maria, their federal, federal law, uh, in particular, uh, USC um, 18922G8 and 9, and I'll make sure you, um, that your audience has this as well. There, um, there are, are provisions in the federal law that state that if you have been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, that you are prohibited from having a firearm. Additionally, if you, under federal law, if you are a respondent in a protection order, a domestic violence protection order, you are now prohibited from having a firearm. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the law, the federal law, does a great job at, at saying, okay, there is a prohibitor, you cannot have a gun. What the federal law does not do is actually give us the mechanism to retrieve or have a, a defendant or respondent relinquish their firearm. Right. And there are several states that have followed, right, the federal legislation of, of misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence and protection orders being prohibitors. Um, but again, communities, what I travel all over the country to, to assist communities in the implementation and enforcement of federal and state laws. And they know, they clearly know that there is this, this, this it is a that it's a prohibition. However, again, they just can't logistically figure out the mechanism to get the guns. So an, an example of that is, um, right, what is, what is the qualifying 
um, domestic violence or the governing offense um, that has to get put into into those um, those databases, right, to prevent purchase. So, for an example. Um, a, a federally licensed firearms dealer has to run a check, as, as you've said. They have, um, they only have to wait three days for a report to come back. Well, you can just about imagine. We've we've already talked about all of the gun sales, right, that were happening during the pandemic. If if I'm a a, a gun dealer selling a firearm, and the F, I only have to let the FBI have three days to tell me whether or not this person is prohibited. If I don't hear from them within those three days, I can still sell the gun. And I don't know if I've sold it to a prohibited party. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. It is absolutely, you are absolutely right. And so what what also needs to happen is that a lot of the work that I do with jurisdictions is helping them, one, to make sure that they are getting the the correct qualifying domestic violence offense category right into those systems so that that it it, it does flag. But we do need need to change. Um, We need to change that process. Um, Those of us who are are working in gun violence and in in domestic violence are, are certainly um, working and on that, right? It, it's something um, just like the dating loophole and those kinds of things that that are on our radar. Um, but it, but but that's just that, that's one of the examples that I can give. But but people jurisdictions are really struggling with how do I even know if the person has a firearm? He's he or she is just going to tell me that they don't have a gun. So now it's it's as though I'm relying on the honor system, right? Well, um, don't. Do you not think that it would make a lot of sense at this point, knowing what what we know, to spend some time and resources on that actual collection of the firearms? I mean, it, it would make sense to me now that that we would move in that direction if we if people are agreeing that the guns should be taken away. There's laws in place in order to make that happen. Happen. So now we need to work on the execution of it. Exactly. Yes. And, and and despite having federal and state laws and tribal laws, oftentimes practitioners, meaning judges and attorneys and law enforcement, still really struggle to understand what authority they have to to remove the firearm. And they, you know, they have, as I've said to you already, there are questions about how do I find out truthfully if the person really does have a gun? If he or she does have a gun, where am I going to store it? Where are we going to put it? Do we have to maintain, right? Oftentimes, um, there there has to be maintenance and, and, and you, right, you have to maintain the quality of the, of the firearm and those kinds of things. Um, but there, there are absolutely ways um, to, to, to get around what, and, and I know I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now, right? What some of these barriers, the barriers are. And, and I just encourage criminal justice professionals and civil justice professionals to really try to think outside of the box. Um, you know, I, an example, Maria, is I, I recently um, had a jurisdiction say to me, you know, we just don't know if he has a gun. We, we, we don't know if he does. And I was just even happy that they were asking the question. Um, but they said, we don't know if he has a gun. And I said, well, can somebody pull a record to see if he's been applying for a hunting license? And if he's been applying for a hunting license in the state for the last six years, what is he using to kill that deer? Right? Like So, so right. thinking about, right, it could be a bow and arrow. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it could be it, it could be a shotgun 
And, and we should be doing our due diligence as much as we possibly can to figure out if guns are present, where they are. But we also have to be incredibly careful not to jeopardize the safety of the victim. And so how do we find out um, about ownership and possession or access to guns without further jeopardizing the victim's safety? The victim should not be our best resource for the information about the guns because it can be so dangerous for her. Yeah, I, I mean, you're raising uh, some really excellent points and ideas. And I think we have our first action item here out of this conversation, and that is perhaps a task force or, or some other, uh, you know, committee to, to really tackle this execution of how to get those guns, how to find out more about what he has or, or doesn't have or um, has applied for and, and take it from there so that we can actually make some progress on that. I need to move on to um, understand just a little bit more about the impact of protection orders because protection orders and civil court prohibitions making their way into criminal court cases seem to be also the better tactics for firearm homicide prevention. Uh, tell us a little bit about the purpose of protection orders and how both practitioners and community members could best optimize those orders. Sure. So a domestic violence protection order, or and often um, called a, a restraining order at times, is is essentially it, it is it's a piece of paper. It is a court order which a judge signs and basically telling an abuser to stop the abuse or that they will face serious legal consequences. Um, and so, right. So a protection order through civil court, uh, you know does offer protection to domestic violence victims, um, including men and women, um, and can oftentimes extend to protections for the children. But what I would say, and you know, this is a conversation that we have as a movement quite, quite frequently, is that oftentimes um, there is this belief that a protection order is a piece of paper. And it is a piece of paper. It is not a shield that will protect you from a bullet. It bothers me when people, especially my colleagues, say that a protection order is just a piece of paper because it is not meant to be just a piece of paper. It is a court order. It is a legally binding document, right, that is prohibiting, refraining someone from threatening and harassing and using violence in their home. And unfortunately, in this country, even with a protection order, victims still struggle to have law enforcement and the courts enforce those orders when the abuser violates it. So while protection orders are, and I stand by this, protection orders are a critical component to victims being able to have some respite and to seek safety from the violence and the abuse. But Maria, you and I both know that that does not get to what the root cause is of why the violence is happening in the first place. And so, yes, it is possible that the protection order, if enforced by, by the court and law enforcement, it can create real protections for victims. But so many victims continue to be failed and don't have that because we still have this issue with believing women that the violence, um, right, is as dangerous 
as it is, right? Oftentimes I sit in meetings, Maria, and people say, if the violence was so bad, she would just leave. Mm -hmm. You and I both know when she tries to leave, he's going to kill her and he most likely will be successful. And so protection orders can absolutely create safety. But what I want you all to hear is that you, I, I encourage you to find out in your community if they are, in fact, truly helping survivors, because the people that issue them are enforcing them. When there's a violation, is, is law enforcement responding? Um, and for some survivors, a protection order, right? Advocates should be having conversations with victims about the realities of protection orders and, and, and what they do and don't do. Um, and for some survivors, a protection order may not be the best solution for them. And so it is going to be on an individual basis, right? What is happening? How is the violence showing up? I have survivors who say, if I file a restraining order or this protection order, it's going to be more dangerous, right? So then that's when we have conversations about the safety planning. Maria, you and I both know that we have to trust victims as the expert of their lived experience and listen to them when they tell us about what they know will keep them safe. Yeah, because we, as you pointed out, there have been cases where um, protective orders have caused further violence uh, and homicide, yes. um, mass shootings, and they are intended to be for the safety and benefit of the victim. But there is a, a strategy that is part of a safety plan. Uh, yes. And when done correctly, it, it can be very helpful. Absolutely. To Absolutely. The survivor. I want to talk about the work that you do, um, that you personally do with the Battle yes. Women's Justice Project, which is one of the largest national legal resources for gender based violence in the country, with a concentrated focus on policy and practice initiatives. Tell us a little bit about the project as it relates to gun violence and what advances have been made and what firearm initiatives you're currently working on. Sure. So um, at the uh, at BWJP, we have the National Center on Gun Violence and Relationships, which essentially right is um, which is an overarching um, umbrella for for two projects that we that we currently have that focus on gun violence. And and one of them is a national is the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Firearms, which is a federally funded program by the Office on Violence Against Women from the Department of Justice. We received uh, in 2013, based on the work that BWJP had been doing around hosting roundtables and pulling folks together from across the country to talk about domestic violence and gun violence. Um, in 2013, we did receive funding um, for the comprehensive website, which is Safer Families, Safer Communities, which you can find at preventdvgunviolence.org. And then in 2016, OBW put out funding to create a national resource center. BWJP applied for that funding and secured that grant and had that grant for five years. We applied again in 2021 and were funded for another five years. And primarily what we do at the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Firearms is travel to jurisdictions across the country and help them with the implementation and enforcement of federal, state, and tribal law. And we actually help them develop the mechanism 
to disarm domestic abusers. Um, we also have a another project under the, the umbrella of the um, National Center on Gun Violence and Relationships, which is increasing safety for survivors of gun violence. And this project is grant funded by the Joyce Foundation, which does tremendous work around gun violence and community violence across the country and has also started graciously looking at the intersection of gun violence and domestic violence. And so we have a project where we've been working with four cities in the Midwest. And we've been working with them on how it is that they can enforce uh, their state laws around firearms and domestic violence, but also looking at strategies outside of the criminal and civil justice systems. You know, Maria, you alluded to, to something earlier about, you know, um, I will, I will just say March of 2020, when the pandemic really hit us and we started going into lockdown and then mm -hmm. followed by the murder of George Floyd um, mm -hmm. in, in, in May, um, in, in his, yeah. I, I lived a, a block from where he was murdered and racial tension and, and all of the things that were happening, right? Really, um, it, it, it was, it, it fueled, it, it, it fueled this movement. Like I, I just hadn't seen, I, I haven't seen before. And so we know that what we what we've always heard from survivors and what we continued to hear from survivors was um, there are some survivors who want criminal and civil justice system interventions. And there are other survivors who say it isn't safe for me to go to systems for guidance. Right. It may not I may have had a negative experience with law enforcement or I have. Right. I. I am I'm fearful that because I am a justice involved victim myself, that I might violate my own conditions of release or I could get my children taken away. There are all of these these things that can happen, right? Negative things that can happen as a result of women just trying to seek safety. And so an, an integral part of our work with these four communities is, yes, civil and criminal justice system interventions. But what else? What else are survivors telling us? Who else in the community should we be bringing to the table to have conversations about how we intervene? How can we have conversations with public health, with our neighbors, et cetera? What is the answer to the question of who else can we bring to the table? I, I think we, I don't want to say we bring everybody to the table. We bring everybody to the table. There is a place at the table for victim advocates, for survivors, for law enforcement, right? For, for all of our traditional criminal justice system players. But I also would love for us in the domestic violence movement to think about how do we have conversations with other community-based supports and organizations like the Y, who, what, what is the YMCA or who is doing, um, right? Who is doing after-school programming? We need to be working with, with gang violence reduction, with community violence prevention folks, with the safe storage folks around gun violence, right? We have, I think, as we've, we've done a disservice around, um, around anything that has to do with guns that we've really siloed practitioners and professionals. Right. And so you've got folks who are just working on safe storage and suicide prevention. And you've got me over here working on domestic violence, but we haven't had an opportunity to come together. And I think we could have really powerful strategies and solutions that respond to communities and heal communities. 
if we start looking outside the box. What we've done at BWJP as well in the DC area is we've pulled together a group of credible messengers and violence interrupters. People who have credibility in their community, who know who's walking up and down the block, who knows everybody who visits the corner store, right? Who's a member of the local church, right? Who knows what's going on in the community, who can be someone who can help diffuse situations before they become violent. And an excellent example of this is um, in many, from many, out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, is there was a young man who was being pressured to go and commit a, a crime with a gun. And he was able to contact a violence interrupter and say, this is the experience, this is what's happening right now in this moment. And he was able to say, if I don't have a gun, I can't go and commit that, right? I can't do what I'm being pressured and asked to do? What do I do? And this violence interrupter was, was able to say, you can bring your gun to this safe location and right and relinquish it. Um, and and, and, and it, it worked. He, because of the work that those folks had done in the community by building relationship, by being on the block, by having conversations, they were able to build rapport and trust with this young man where he felt safe enough to be able to say, I don't want to do, I don't want to do this bad thing, but if I have the gun, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be made to do it, or I'm, I'm going to be pressured to do it. I'm going to make a bad choice. I don't want to, what can I do? And him being able to do that really speaks to all of the work that those violence interrupters and credible messengers were able to do as community members concerned about what's happening in their community and saying enough is enough. And we're going to figure out what are your basic needs? What do you need to be able to make healthier decisions, to make better choices that don't harm you and harm other people? That is such an interesting approach and, and so positive. So we've touched on so many pivotal moments uh, over the course of history and, and in the past couple of years alone, um, some of them terribly sad and wrong and awful. And then moments like this, where there can be a, a, a real positive turn of events, um, or something that could have ended tragically, turns out to, to, you know, really change someone's life for the for the better, perhaps. Um, we are running out of time, but I want to uh, ask you to give us just a little bit more information about uh, what women in abusive relations can look out for. Uh, that lethal abuse may occur because there's a firearm in the home or part of the relationship? And then also what trainings and resources you offer um, at BWJP? Absolutely. And Maria, I just, I, I could talk with you all day as this, this is such an important yes. issue. I just thank you. I thank you so much again for, for, for providing the platform, you know, in, in terms of what it is that, that women or men who are in abusive relationships should, should look out for, um, right. We know that the presence of a gun alone, mm -hmm. it, 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 right, right there it is enough to be concerned. But, um, uh, in terms of signs that abuse could be turning lethal, um, any type of perceived uh, from the, the perpetrator, if he or she is has a perceived loss of control over the victim, and that can be through, as I mentioned earlier, separation, um, divorce, or the victim leaving, right? We know that the period of time leading up to, to separation or leaving or immediately after is a, an incredibly dangerous time. 
um, escalating or, or signs of, you know, of extreme jealousy, um, escalation of the abuse and um, of the, the frequency of, of, of the abuse occurring is an, is an indication. Um, if he starts using um, physical violence in a public place or a, pu a public setting, um, should be concerning, very concerning. Um, it is also not uncommon for perpetrators or abusers to to make suicidal um, comments or thoughts um, or, or even to threaten uh, homicide. And again, I've, I've said this, but of course, um, I want to bring it up again, the access to a weapon, especially a gun. Um, guns are used more than any other weapon, than all other weapons combined um, to, um, to commit a, a femicide or a homicide. Uh, and we cannot discount um, the seriousness of stalking. Stalking is absolutely an indicator that lethal violence um, is on the horizon. And so I, I, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. I, you're, you're spot on. And I it's so dangerous. And, and we know we know that those victims are that victims of stalking who are murdered are, are murdered with a firearm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you mentioned so many websites uh, yes, throughout the yes. course of this conversation, and I hope you will share all of those with me uh, and with the team for the, the Conference on Crimes Against Women so that we can include them uh, on our website as a resource for this conversation and further learning as well as taking action, which is, I hope, what will be one of the outcomes of people listening to this podcast. But where can people learn more about your work and possibly contact you if they have more questions? Yes, yes. So please, please do. The BWJP is is home to a variety of, of national centers. Um, aside from the the work that we do around gun violence, we do um, we are one of the national um, leaders um, around custody and children and families. We have an entire center that is that is dedicated to protection orders and full faith and credit. Uh, we do a variety of, of, of different things, but really all focused um, around the, the legal arena and, and helping survivors of domestic violence. Something that I'm really proud of that we just launched that I would really encourage people to check out. BWJP is now homed to the National Gender-Based Violence Learning Community. And this is a go-to hub for all of your training needs. So as you know, BWJP is a national training and technical assistance provider for the Department of Health and Human Services, also for the Office on Violence Against Women. So we've built this consortium of, of different providers, including BWJP, Esperanza United, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and the Asian Pacific Institute on Gender-Based Violence. And together, we've created this great website where we have a variety of different trainings that are available to you on demand. There are live trainings. We've got continuing education credits, all of those types of things. But the majority of what it is that we're doing at BWJP through our national centers um, is that because we are federally funded, much of the work that we do is free to you. So if you are having issues with the enforcement of protection orders or full faith and credit, you can contact BWJP and we will send people to your community to help you walk through and to figure out what it is that you need to do. Very similar to what I do with the gun violence work is if you are living in a community where you think you may be operating on the honor system and that you don't actually know if guns are being relinquished from domestic abusers, you can call us. We will come to your community for free. We will help you get everybody who should be around the table to get together. And we'll stick with you as long as it takes. 
to get a protocol in place where you can successfully disarm domestic abusers. Um, but I would, you know, all of what we do is around the training and technical assistance to help providers in their community do the very, very best they can on behalf of survivors. I would also invite, if there are survivors who are listening to this podcast today, BWJP would also love to hear from you. It is incredibly important to us that all of the work that we do be centered in the voices of survivors. And that means that we listen to you as to what what is what is the violence what does the violence look like in your life what has your experience been with systems truly right we all when we create policies and protocols we we think we know how it might what the impact might be and at times there may be unintended consequences and we need you to tell us how our actions are showing up in your life and if it's helping you or doing you a disservice and what we can do to make systems change so that we can keep people safe. And ultimately, Maria, my goal is that we move people who have experienced violence in their lives. We move them from surviving to thriving, where they are free from they are free to live their lives away from violence and to be able to have opportunities to heal where what has happened to them is a part of who they are. It doesn't define them, that they're able to move forward living happy and successful lives. And we want to be a part of helping communities do that at BWJP. Excellent work, Alicia. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for thank you so much for having me. It, it's, it's it's always um, it's it's always great um, to share space with someone who really wants to highlight um, just the seriousness and pervasiveness of the issue. And it's going to take all of us to, to to fix it and to resolve it and to keep people safe. So thank you so so much. And thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe. Interested in learning more about the topics you've heard on this podcast? Visit conferencecaw.org for details about the 2023 Conference on Crimes Against Women and other upcoming training opportunities. And be sure to follow us on social media at National CCAW.